Right, well, good morning again, everyone. I'm blessed to see all you folks uh, brave the storm to come out. God bless you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22? If you're new with us, we're studying Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we have come to chapter 22, which is right in the middle of the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. This week started out on Palm Sunday, as we have said numerous times, with his triumphal entry into the city, proclaiming himself officially to be the Messiah and King. Of course, he was rejected by the Jewish leadership primarily, but many of the people had rejected him by this time, even though they had benefited from his ministry. He wasn't acting like the revolutionary that they had believed the Messiah would act like when he came. And uh, talking about loving their enemies, and so they want to hear that. They wanted uh, Messiah who was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome and establish the kingdom. So the people have pretty much turned against him. And things are really heating up now. In fact, they reach a crescendo or a boiling point uh, in chapter 23, when eight times he calls these uh, Pharisees and scribes hypocrites because they say one thing and do another. They give the, the appearance of being righteous men, but they're really living in uh, compromise and carnality. So we're going to see this as we go through this, but right now we pick it up in verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now, let me just give you a brief explanation of this passage, starting with the context. Chapter 22 is really a continuation of a confrontation that began in chapter 21 after Jesus cleansed the temple. You remember how he went in there with a cat of nine tails and drove out the money changers, overturned their tables, and drove out those who sold the animal sacrifices. Uh, these people, the uh, chief priests and all, were making merchandise of worshipers that had come to worship God. They were making money off these people, ripping them off. Jesus was incensed, and he drove all these people out, saying, my, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. Well, after he drove all these people out, I mean, it really hit the pocketbook of these chief priests and the people that ran these concessions in the temple. And so the next day they confronted him. And they said, tell us by what authority you're doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And you can read how it worked out in chapter 21, verses 24 to 7. But from that point, Jesus then gives two parables back to back to illustrate Israel's rebellion, stubbornness, fruitlessness, and even violent opposition to the program of God. Here these men proclaimed to be or purported to be uh, men of God, and here they were standing against the purposes of God. The very one that God had sent them, the Messiah, not only did they reject, but in two days they were going to have crucified. Talk about rebellion. So Jesus gives them a couple of parables back to back. 
But he's not finished. In chapter 22, he continues in his denunciation of the nation and its impending judgment by giving them a third parable, which we studied last week in verses 1 to 14. Now, this causes the Pharisees and Herodians to team up and come against him, kind of a counterattack. Who are these people? Well, the Pharisees were, a, were the dominant religious party in Israel at that time. Their name means separatists. And they arose to defend the Jewish way of life against all foreign influences, primarily against the influence of Hellenism or the Grecian culture. You see, even though Rome had conquered Greece uh, several hundred years earlier, uh, the, the um, Greek culture had been so strong that most of the known world continued to speak Greek after the Romans took power. And the influence of Grecian culture was still celebrated in many parts of the world. Even a lot of Jews had climbed on board and were called Hellenists, which they were Jews uh, living outside of Israel, uh, but who had embraced kind of the, the Greek way of life. The Pharisees were adamantly opposed to that. They wanted to maintain the purity of the Jewish life and so on. And so they arose partly for this purpose. Now, they relied heavily on the scribes. In fact, you'll often see in the New Testament those two coupled together, the scribes and Pharisees. They, they, they worked together. But the Pharisees were strict legalists who believed in the entirety of the Jewish scriptures as being inspired by God, unlike the Sadducees, who only believed the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, was actually, were actually inspired by God. But the Pharisees were ultra-religious and fiercely nationalistic and saw it as one of their main purposes to restore the kingdom back to the royal line of David. So they were not just a religious sect. In many ways, they were a political party as well. Today, we would classify them as fundamental uh, theologically and ultra-conservative politically. Well, they teamed up with the Herodians. Who are these guys? Well, the Herodians emerged during the Roman era. They were also a political party whose major aim was to further the cause of Herod's government. You remember, of course, that Herod the Great was appointed by Rome to be the king of Israel, but he wasn't even Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau, the older twin brother of Jacob. Esau, his descendants were called the Edomites, also known as the Idumeans. Uh, Herod was an Idumean. He was, a, he was a, a, a member of the family of Esau, not Jacob. And the fact that an interloper was on the throne of David instead of, David instead of one of David's own descendants infuriated the Pharisees. The Herodians, however, supported Herod and his sons as monarchs. They were pro-Rome and strongly inclined toward Hellenism. Now you say, well, how did these two groups join forces? I mean, it sounds like they'd hate each other. They did hate each other. It's just that their mutual hatred for Jesus was even stronger than their hatred for one another. We kind of see this going on in our culture. Groups that would ordinarily be opposed to one another because they hate Christians and Christianity and Christ so much, they're joining forces. So we're seeing more and more of that in our own culture. All right, well, here's the confrontation. We read in verse 16, And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. And all they're saying when they say that is not that the Lord didn't care about anybody, just that he was not a respecter of people. He was totally fair. That's what they were saying. He was impartial to all people. He didn't play favorites. So they start out with a little flattery, don't they? To kind of butter Jesus up. 
Get him to lower his guard. Beware of people who flatter you. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot said in the scripture, especially Proverbs, about people who flatter you. Watch out. Usually, it's not going to work out so well for you uh, in the end. So they flatter the Lord a little bit, you know, trying to get him to lower his guard. And then they hit him with a trick question that was designed to catch him on the horns of what they thought was an inescapable dilemma. Verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Loaded question. Okay. Um, There were actually three taxes imposed by the Roman government. The first was a land tax. So there were farmers, many of them back then. And so the Roman government taxed them one-tenth of the grain their land produced and one-fifth of the oil and wine to be assessed annually. The second one was an income tax, which amounted to 1% of a man's income. Oh, for those days. Uh, 1% of a man's income. And then there was what was called the poll tax, sometimes referred to as a head tax. And this was levied on all men from 14 to 65 and all women from 12 to 65. This poll tax amounted to a denarius per year. A denarius was the average day's wage of a soldier or a common working man, a laborer. This was a tax that everyone had to pay, listen, simply for the privilege of existing. Okay? Simply for the privilege of existing. Now, of all the taxes imposed by Rome on its subjects, This was the one the Jews hated the most. This was the one that infuriated them the most. And this was the tax the Pharisees and Herodians were talking about. Taking all of this into account, you have to give it to them. The question that the Pharisees and Herodians put to Jesus was a masterpiece of demonic cunning. I mean, if Jesus would have said it was lawful to pay this tax, then the Jews would have turned against them because they considered it a great evil uh, to pay this tax, okay? You're going to give us the right to exist? God gives us the right to exist. You can imagine how they felt about this tax. They were infuriated by it. And if Jesus would have said, yes, it's lawful, they would have turned away from him. So he would have lost popularity with the people. If he would have said, no, it is not lawful to pay this tax, these guys would have gone straight to the Roman government, reported Jesus, they would have had Jesus arrested as a revolutionary. So either way, the Pharisees and Herodians must have thought they had Jesus in a trap from which there was no escape. Well, they didn't know our Lord, did they? And so in verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And so they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Let me stop there. Let me give you a picture in your mind's eye of what we're talking about. On the front of this coin would have been stamped an image of the current Caesar's face. At this time, it would have been Tiberius Caesar. All the emperors, by the way, were called Caesar. All right. On On the front of the coin was the face of the current Caesar in power. Around the face of the coin were written the words, Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus, son of Augustus. On the reverse side of the coin, there would have been another image of Tiberius Caesar, this time sitting on his throne wearing priestly robes. And on this side, you have the words written, Pontifex Maximus, 
which literally means the high priest of the Roman nation. High priest of the Roman nation. Now, to fully appreciate what's going on here, you need to understand how ancient peoples viewed coinage. Okay, very important. Coinage was first of all seen as a sign of power. Whenever a king conquered a nation or a rebel conquered an area, the first thing they did was to mint their own coins with their own pictures on it because this solidified their power and validated their rule. They always did this, okay? As soon as they gained power, immediately they would have the coins made with their faces on it, with their names on it, because again, this solidified their power. It validated their right now to rule. Secondly, the king's power in a given area was only seen as valid as long as his coinage was accepted currency, was the accepted currency. And number three, because a coin had the king's face and inscription on it, it was held at least in some sense to be his personal property. And it's that last point that helps us to understand the answer that Jesus gives these people. When he asked them, well, whose image and inscription is this on the coin? They said Caesar's. He said, well, then render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. The word render there is a Greek word that means to pay or give back. In this context, it means paying a debt owed to the Roman government for services rendered. Now, we'll talk about that more in a moment. I want you to see verse 22. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Boy, they thought they had him. Either way, he answered this, we got him. And the answer was what the Bible calls a word of wisdom. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit that comes at certain times uh, in a moment of crisis, in some kind of confrontation situation where God zaps you with supernatural wisdom for the moment that nobody can argue against. It just silences the critics. It's not a reservoir of wisdom that you have at your disposal anytime you want like Solomon had. He had wisdom that was his and just he could draw from anytime he wanted. This is a special infusion of wisdom in the situation. And there are examples of this in the New Testament, but here's a great one right here. All right? They thought they had him on the horns of a dilemma. An airtight question that no matter how he answered it, he was done. He was guilty. And yet this wisdom from the Holy Spirit comes upon the Lord. And he gives to them this incredible answer. And they marvel. They were astonished. And they slinked away with their tail between their legs. Now, we see this happen numerous times. We're going to see it next week. Every time they look like a tag team. Here comes the Pharisees and Herodians. Oh, there they go. Here comes the Sadducees. Oh, they're going to get them. Oh, there they go. He keeps, he keeps shooting them down. All right? I love it. It's a great uh, section. All right, that's essentially the explanation of the passage. You're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, well, how does any of this relate to my life at all? All right, well, uh, let's look at the application. Because I think in this simple yet profound reply that Jesus gave these men, he taught us some very important truths, truths that we, we need to know. First of all, and these I'm just going to give these briefly, I mean, because they're, most of these just are self-explanatory. But through this passage right here, and there's different places throughout the scriptures that teach us, but right here we learn that the Christian lives in two worlds, the spiritual and the physical. Number two, the Christian has dual citizenship. He or she is a citizen of their earthly country or kingdom, but they are also a citizen of the kingdom of God. Number three, the Christian is to be loyal to both. 
he or she is to be loyal to his country or her country and its leaders, but they're also to be loyal to God and his kingdom. And number four, the Christian has responsibilities to obey both. We as Christians are commanded to obey the laws of this country, our country. I draw your attention to 1 Peter 2. You don't have to turn there. We'll, we will look at this in more detail later on. But 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15, Peter says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that we obey the laws of our land, that we be good citizens. But we're also to obey the laws of God. Jesus himself said in Luke eleven twenty eight, he said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So we are to obey not just earthly laws, but of course the laws of God. Now, on the whole, the New Testament lays down three great principles with regard to the individual Christian and the state. And I, and I think we need to spend the rest of our time this morning on this because this is an issue that a lot of Christians have a problem with. How much should we, you know, should we be against the state simply because we're Christians now? Is the state our enemy? Sometimes the state makes itself our enemy, but it's not automatically the enemy of the church. Now, again, in our country, things are changing, and they're changing rapidly. The state seems to be growing more and more antagonistic towards Christianity and his followers, which means they're becoming more and more antagonistic towards Jesus. But I, I have to laugh. It wasn't, it's, it's a serious thing, so I don't mean to make light of it, but you, you want to laugh sometimes. I mean, recently, in the last few weeks, do you see the government going after the little sisters of the poor? Are you kidding me? You know, they show these sweet little nuns. They're all elderly. I don't know if there's any young ladies who are involved, but these sweet elderly nuns whose whole mission in life is to take care of the poor. But because of the new government mandate, they would have to in some way support abortion, fund abortion, uh, supply abortion things to their other employees or whatever. And, and of course, the ladies are, they, we can't do that. We're, 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 you know, Roman Catholics, and we, we believe that abortion is wrong. God bless them. We all in this room pretty much believe that too. But here's the, talk about David and Goliath. Here's the government. I mean, you know, the government, no matter what they did after they went after these ladies, they were going to be on the losing end of public opinion. And so they've kind of backed off a little bit. I don't think it's over with, but they've kind of backed off for right now. So the little sisters of the poor are safe at this moment. Uh, but I don't know how the future is going to bring. But anyways, just so you know that civil government is not automatically the enemy of the church. Why? Because first of all, civil government has been established by God. Turn to Romans 13. And I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation, but Romans 13, starting in verse 1, Paul said, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. Verse 5, so you must submit to them, to governing authorities, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. And of course, the context is that Paul is dealing with civil government. And he is saying basically that in any ordered society, there must be authority. And then submission to that authority, or otherwise you have a state of anarchy, and nobody can survive in anarchy. 
God knows that no gover- that uh, any government is better than no government. That's why he instituted human government, and uh, all governments exist according to his will. Now, hear me out. I don't mean, please, just because God has ordained human government doesn't mean he sanctions all the things that go on in those governments. God is against those who are brutal dictators. He's against and does not approve of in any way of the corruption, brutality, and tyranny that many earthly leaders engage in. And know this, because God has instituted human government, he expects all leaders to rule in the fear of God and to to rule in righteousness. If they do not, if they oppress their people, the Saddam Husseins, the Hitlers, the Stalins, they will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday, give an account, and will be judged severely for what they have done in the name of government. So their day's coming, all right? But I just want you to realize that without civil government, many of the valuable services that we have come to take for granted wouldn't be possible. I'm talking about in a city setting or in a community setting. I mean, certainly we have survivalists that go out somewhere and buy a piece of ground to build a cabin and live in the wilderness. If that's where you're coming from, God bless you, okay? But for most of us, we're not going to do that, okay? Which means we need civil government because no person can, you know, have their own water system or their own uh, sewer system, their own private transportation system, you know, let alone, you know, not to mention police protection, fire protection, and a standing military for the protection of its citizens on a national scale. That's why we need government. The state is the origin of many of the things that make life in a civilized society pleasurable, if not possible. So civil government has been established by God, number one. Number two, no one can honorably, and I underscore the word honorably, accept all the benefits which the state gives, but then opt out of all their responsibilities. It is beyond question that the Roman government brought to the ancient world a sense of security and peace it had never known before. For the most part, Rome cleared the seas of pirates, the roads of thieves, civil wars were replaced with peace, and tyranny with Roman impartial justice, which they were very proud of. One historian writes, and I quote, It was the glory of the Roman Empire that it brought peace to a troubled world. Under its sway, the regions of Asia Minor and the East enjoyed tranquility and security to an extent and for a length of time unknown before and probably since. This was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The person under Roman authority found himself in a position to conduct his business, provide for his family, send his letters, and make his journeys in security thanks to the strong hand of Rome. So we understand something. The Roman government, for all of its faults, did provide a lot of wonderful benefits to its people. So again, it isn't right for somebody to enjoy all the benefits that the state bestows upon them and then seek to exempt themselves from all the responsibilities of citizenship. And, primarily, and number three, part of that responsibility is to pay the state its due in the area of taxes. Back in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, we read, Paul said, pay your taxes too, for these same reasons, for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. So the government employs people, which then serve the rest of us. Now, we can argue about whether or not the government has employed too many people. They're no longer serving us, but they're, they're draining the money of the country. 
But I just want you to realize we're talking just in general terms now. Okay, what the Bible says about government. When Jesus said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he was essentially answering the question in a roundabout way. He was saying to these men, yes, it's entirely lawful and right to pay the poll tax to Caesar because Caesar uses that money to support his government, which then provides services for the rest of us. So yes, it is legal. It is proper. Again, Romans 13, 7. Paul says, give to everyone what you owe them, pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Now, that's very important, okay? Look, we're living at a time when some of our leaders are doing things that, quite honestly, when you watch the news, infuriate us, don't they? Because of it, a lot of Christians have become very anti-government. Now, I'm not endorsing the government. I'm certainly not, again talking about blending the church with the state, that never works out well for the church, where it's been tried in other countries. But the idea is that God wants us to respect those who are in authority and to pray for them. In fact, and I'm just trying to give you some balance here, because some people have some very strong feelings. They get very angry at the government for any reason. And therefore, you know, any talk of kind of respecting leaders and praying for them well, they get very upset, all right? I'm just trying to give you what the Bible says, just a balanced look at this issue. But in 1 Timothy 2, if you turn there, listen to what Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1, he said, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings. So now you say, look, pray for everybody that you know that needs prayer, but especially pray for your civil leaders. Pray in this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. For this is good and pleases God our Savior. You know, Christians get all up in arms, and I understand why. Because you have unbelievers running government, trampling on the laws of God, you know, and doing things that are not right. And so they just get furious and just want, you know, but here's the thing. Paul said to pray for them. Well, why should I pray for them? I wanted a Christian leader. Well, if you pray for them, maybe they'll get saved and become a Christian leader. I mean, if you don't like the government you got, pray that God will save these folks. So that they start ruling in the fear of God and so on. And if they will not get saved, then pray that God replaces them. Either way, we're not to hate anybody. God is in control, Right? We know that the world is moving towards ultimately a one-world government that the Bible talks about before Jesus Christ can come back. So we get all upset, we get worked up, but we know what the Bible says. So we need to understand that, look, things are happening according to what the Bible has predicted. But let me just come back for a minute to the verses I quoted earlier from 1 Peter. I want to comment a little further on what Peter said, and then we'll close. So turn to 1 Peter 2. And let's again read verses 13 to 15, where Paul, or Peter said, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme, or to governors, uh, as to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So Peter says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance, every law of man for whose sake? For the Lord's sake. We do it because Jesus has commanded us to do it. 
you know, you don't have to love the government to respect authority, okay? When Daniel was taken to, uh, to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was a despot. Daniel didn't respect the man, he respected the office and treated King Nebuchadnezzar with such respect and was a good counselor to him, I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved. We're not going to help anybody come to Christ by just hating our leaders. Pray for them, you know. Ask God to save them, that they might become godly men and women. Because we want to, as Paul said to Timothy, we want to live peaceful and quiet lives. Because we have a government that is really operating, you know, under the fear of God. So submit yourselves to every law of man for the Lord's sake. I know that some of you would say right away, though, but what if we don't agree with those laws as Christians? Do we have to obey them? Well, that depends on whether or not the laws of man contradict or conflict with the laws of God. You see, the only time God allows us to disobey civil government is when it passes laws that are in direct violation of God's laws. Now listen, there might be times when we have to choose between obeying God and the government. Those times might be coming. But the things we read from Paul and Peter in those uh, their epistles um, are not talking about you know that situation. They're just simply encouraging us to be good citizens. Respect our leaders, pray for them, obey the laws of our land. It's a good witness. It's what God wants us to do. It, uh, it causes uh, Christianity be, to be cast in a good light that we're good citizens and so on. And if the day ever does come when our government commands us to do what God has commanded us not to do or not to do something God has commanded us to do, then as Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. But until that day comes, we need to continue to be good citizens. Not revolutionaries, you know, not those who want to overthrow the government, not that anybody in this room would want to do that, but we have some who call themselves Christians who are wanting to overthrow the government. I don't agree with that. I do not agree with that. God, Daniel 5 tells us, raises men up for leadership and brings them down. Mary in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 uh, says that God raises up kingdoms and brings them down. God is in authority. God is in control. And we're just called to be good citizens and to pray and let God do what he's going to do. But one last time, let me quote what the Lord said in our text this morning. Matthew 22, verse 21. Jesus said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Even as Caesar's image was stamped on Roman currency, Genesis 1.27 tells us that God stamped his image on his creation. We have all been made in the image of God. And guys, this is the most important lesson you can take away from this study this morning. It's not profound, it's very simple. But here it is. Give to the government what belongs to the government, but give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God are life, our love, and our service. We have dear brothers and sisters who have made it their mission to restore America to its former glory, to bring us back to the time our founding fathers lived and to, and to where people will respect the Constitution and they live by the Constitution and so on and so forth. I would love to go back to those times. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening. And look, if you spend all your time trying to bring America back to its former glory, you're going to miss what God's doing right now. Because God is working. He makes even the wrath of man to praise him. You think these men, you think that they 
are pulling the, running the show, pulling the strings. Excuse me, running the show, God's pulling the strings. I think of his little puppet, Augustus, in, uh, in Luke 2, who decided one day, oh, I think I'll have all the world taxed. So I've got to have everybody go to the place they were born. Yeah, that's a good idea. Except that God put it in his heart because he needed to get Mary and Joseph 70 miles to the north, 70 miles um, from the north down to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in the place that Micah 5.2 prophesied he'd be born in. Bethlehem in the county of Ephrathah. You think that puppet in Rome was calling the shots? <laughs> Book of Proverbs says the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he can turn it wheresoever he wishes. Our God's in control. And I pray for a revival in our nation. I really do. And I pray that God's got one last great revival before the rapture. I don't know. I know this. America is going to go the way of all the nations that have gone before it. Just like in the Old Testament time, God took a very insignificant people and by his power and grace and sovereignty, he elevated them to the strongest nation on the face of the earth, Israel. But in the course of time, they began to look at their wealth and their power and began to take credit for it. They began to think that their ingenuity, their toughness had made them so great. They began to turn away from God. And it led to apathy, idolatry, and eventually to judgment. And America has gone the same way. America was raised up by God from obscurity to become the strongest nation on the face of the earth. And I know I speak for everyone in this room that we are very thankful that God allowed us to be born into a country where we have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, plenty to eat. We can vote for our leaders and so on. Guys, we don't understand the blessing many times of what God has allowed this generation in America or those who have lived in this country since its inception to enjoy. Those days might be coming to an end. And my goal in life is not to recapture America's past glory. It's to find out what God wants to do to bring his glory to the earth now. And I believe he wants us to keep our eyes on Jesus. He wants us to keep our eyes on the return of Christ. Someday, the Bible says all the nations of the earth are going to be placed under the authority of Jesus Christ. He will rule over all of them with a rod of iron. Someday, America will come to an end, but Jesus' kingdom will go on forever. So where do we want to be spending most of our loyalties and hard work? building the kingdom of America or building the kingdom of God. We thank God for America. We pray for our country. We respect our leaders. We be good citizens. But I want to work for a kingdom that is coming that will never fade away. And so let's focus on that. In the meantime, let's be good citizens. We have some Christians in Congress. They have a very difficult job. I have met some of them. And let me tell you, talk about an evil environment. Washington, D.C. has got to be one of the most evil towns in the world. And yet we pray for our leaders. Pray for those Christians in office. Be a part of the political process. Some Christians say, well, America's you know, going to fade away. I won't even bother getting involved. I won't bother to vote. Or what. I believe that you're going to stand before God because of that. You need to vote. You need to be uh, aware of what's, who's running and what they believe that we can exercise our vote for those who are, who are godly. But in the final analysis, God's on the throne. But Jesus is coming soon. So let's focus on the kingdom that is coming. Give to, 
Give to Caesar. Give to government what belongs to government. Give to God what belongs to God. You've been stamped with his image. You bear his likeness. You belong to him. Use your life for his glory. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be born into a country where we have enjoyed so much plenty, so much prosperity, so much freedom. Lord, those days might be coming to an end. Things might be radically, getting ready to radically change in a way that we won't even recognize this country anymore. But if that's the case, Lord, we know it's all according to your plan. And give us grace to use whatever time is left for your glory to build your kingdom. And uh, Father, we just pray for our leaders that you will save our president, our vice president, members of Congress who don't know you. Strengthen those that do. But Lord, give us a, a heart that doesn't seek to lay up for our, ourselves treasures on the earth in this kingdom, but to keep our eyes up above, lay our, up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.